This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Anglo-Saxons at the British Library. Chase Rules. And my 2018 London Book Hall. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans. Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The sound of jet propellers feathering down, the incomprehensible noises over the tannoy, and the smell of exotic cooking welcome us once more to another travel advisory, except only the incomprehensible tannoy is true, because we went to London, didn't we, Robin? As we so often do for dragon meat, and as we so often do for dragon meat, we skipped out and went to a different thing afterward, and that different thing this time was the British Library's exhibition on the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, so if you're uh, if you're in London or going to be in around London between now and February 19th, uh, you'll be able to hie yourself uh, over and uh, check this out yourself. But for the benefit of others, uh, we're going to talk about some, some highlights. So uh, it's a British library show, meaning it's focused on books. Huh. Uh, so there's a lot of open manuscripts. Uh, and of course that means, uh, in this case, a lot of open Bibles and, uh, charters. So, uh, the Anglo-Saxons, Ken, they start in the fifth century. Uh, they come over, uh, along with the Jutes, uh, none of whom are thinking of themselves as Angles or Saxons or Jutes as they come over, but those names are assigned to them later by what process, uh, how did how did those names come about? Do you know that? Only the Saxons were Saxons because they were people who used the sax, the 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 axe, and that was their name back in Germany. Hence Saxony in Germany. The Angles were supposedly named by a pope who said that they looked like angels. Well, that probably isn't the name. Uh, the way that that came from it probably came from some <laughs> yeah, angle in the Danish coast or something. And the Jutes come from Jutland, good old Jutland, which was the other land of the Jutes. And I think, though I am prepared to be corrected that they are a cognate to Beowulf's Gaets, who I guess were the Jutes that stayed home and didn't go to England. And we're like, sorry, you're such a sucker of a Jute. We are Gaets. 
Um, But anyway, they all lived in that sort of jambled up area of Denmark, northern Germany, and maybe a little bit of southern Sweden. And they sort of flooded over uh, when the getting was good in Britain as the rule of law was collapsing and the Irish and uh, Picts were making themselves annoying to landowners. And landowners said, well, we can't go fight Irish and Picts. We'd get our our fists dirty. We'd better get some uh, guys who use the axe and know all the angles and come from Jutland. I'm sorry, I was running out of clever ideas. The Irish are attacking. So they brought them all over and made them their their sort of um, uh, militia, their federati, their allies in the Roman sense. And you know what happens when you invite the only people who know how to use an axe to live in your fertile island? They take I don't it know. Over. They wind That's up in happens. charge with their axes. They wind up in charge. Exactly. And that is what happened after a bit of jiggery pokery, uh, that is still the topic of controversy to this very day. Uh, but anyway, yes. the upshot was that by the sixth century, the Anglo Saxons, uh, meaning the Angles, Saxons and Jutes have pretty much put themselves on top of everything east of Wales and south of Scotland and are beginning to sort out which of these little kingdoms gets to be the king of England. And that was what much of the books were about, as well as many of the charts and writs and angry letters back and forth about you are not neither an archbishop. Yes. Uh, And of course, because there's another uh, migration, a thought migration from uh uh, lower down in Europe, and uh, these uh, rulers are no more settled in than people arrive and start converting them to Christianity and uh, plugging them in to the uh, papal power structure. And, and and many of those people were from Ireland. Uh, one of the things that we notice in the in the Bibles, especially the very early Bibles, is how much of the decoration is not Germanic. It's just Irish scroll work and circle work, and and uh, even the animals and things like that are very often characteristically Irish. Uh, style drawings that the Irish would come over and teach people to draw, and they would teach them to draw like the Irish drew, not like the like how they might have drawn if they'd been taught by Saxons. Right. In fact, uh, one of the documents that we both uh, enjoyed uh, was a, a letter that is carefully written so that the uh, is it the first is it an alliterative sentence or an alliterative series of paragraphs? It's an alliterative there? sentence. It's like the first fourteen out of fifteen words in the opening salutation. Uh, are in Latin because everyone writes to each other in Latin still. And each of those 14 words begins with P because apparently the Irish did not have the letter P in their native alphabet. And it, this is the first example of an Englishman getting stroppy to an Irishman, I guess. Yes, it's a, a dig at the Irish. So I guess, you know, St. Atrick, as he, as he was as originally he was known, known at the time, well, I, I think maybe into, he brought uh, the P over and he traded out snakes for the letter P. That was his yes. deal. So there are, are some major, uh, bibliographical treasures at this show. There's the oldest known European book with an intact binding, which is the uh, St. Cuthbert Gospel from the 8th century, and the goatskin uh, red binding is is uh, still looking uh, in pretty good shape, surprisingly enough. Yeah, I mean, if you had looked at that, if I had looked at that and someone had said, when was that bound? I would not have guessed the 8th century or 9th century or whatever it was. That looked like you know, that could have even been early modern. That could have been 16th or 15th century binding. Well, it's it's spent like 300 years uh, at the head of uh, St. Cuthbert. Yeah, that's in true. In his coffin. And then in 1104, they pried that open. So, And, and there uh, was we this all miraculous know, uh, little prayer book. Yeah. So as D&D players, we all know St. Cuthbert gives you magic. And mm-hmm. uh, so in that case, the magic uh, preserved uh, that binding. 
the uh, biggest book at the show by uh, <laughs> many factors is the Codex Amiatinus, uh, which is a, a gigantic manuscript Bible. It's uh, bigger than you could get on as carry-on luggage. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think many, you'd have to check it specially even. It was yes, enormous. Uh, for, for many centuries, it wasn't realized that this was uh, made in England or commissioned by someone in, in uh, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms because the bishop who uh, had it made then took it with him on his pilgrimage to Rome and promptly died along the way. I suspect from carrying this giant Bible. Or from or from nervousness that someone would jo- drop the giant Bible. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, one or the other, or drop the Bible on him. On him. That may have been how he died. Is someone, He said, now, let me read a text to reconcile you to your job of carrying the giant Bible, and they open it up and it slid down and hit him. It's a 75-pound Bible. Is yeah, how big so this it is. fell into someone else's, uh, not even hands, but arms. Mm-hmm. And uh, another uh, ecclesiast erased the name of the commissioner and put his own name in it as if he yes. had uh, Peter uh, had the Lombard, in case you're looking for a guy you don't like. That yes. Uh, so uh, there's uh, all sorts of a uh, funny example because this is a, a show. It's a British library. It's mostly books, uh, but there's all sorts of uh, uh, you know elements of humanity sticking in literally at the margins often uh, of uh, all of the, the the books have stories with them, even though they're quite often the only you know they're all the same set of stories, but uh, there's little bits of uh, of humanity along the way. And uh, was there something in particular that, that struck you as, as a highlight that you want to talk about? I mean, well, there's the things that I think struck both of us. One of the things that was kind of interesting was the uh, degree to which you'd see the motifs sort of show up and then go away. So in the very earliest parts of the exhibit, there was lots of things with beaks and they were bad news. And you'd see uh, sort of these beaked monsters on the very, very early Saxon, uh, like, uh, uh, brooches and carvings. They had pieces of the Sutton who, and there was a guy who was fighting off these beaked monsters. And then there was some very dangerous looking birds in the very early Bibles. They'd show, you know, even the bird of, um, uh, whichever saint it is that has the bird. Is it St. Matthew? That's the bird. No, St. John. The St. John Eagle, they, they draw the, the St. John Eagle, and then they'd put a bunch of protective crosses around it to make sure that St. John's Eagle couldn't get out and tear your face off. And then at some point in, it looks like maybe the 8th century, people decided birds were all right, and they stopped making the birds so scary. But you can see these sort of tropes that get deployed from one thing to another and then turned into Christian imagery and then uh, basically domesticated. And it's sort of the same way that, you know, belief in fairies happens or, or lots of other things that they begin as terrifying for some reason. And you can assume perhaps there was some, you know, infestation of turkey buzzards or something or, or, or crows that carried off all the, all the crops or for some reason people were mad as hell about birds. Back the in, birds uh, stopped the, pecking people after a while to, to lull us into a false sense of security. They're just waiting to come back. Yeah, it was the it was Merlin probably told them no more pecking people for at least fifteen hundred years, maybe sixteen hundred. But the uh, but but that sort of you know way that the that the artistic um, uh, depictions of various concepts would would change. It, it, it is sort of a shame in a, in some sense. Obviously, we would have still been there if they if you could have done it. But it would some of the books. 
they would open it to whichever page they thought would sort of make a point. So you'd see like three versions of the Psalter would all be open to the same Psalm or three gospel books would all be open to St. Matthew. So you could see the ways that those were, were different and the same, but it would have been interesting to be able to go through like the book, the, the marvels of the East, which had two things that people feared, very tall people and guys with no heads, uh, the Blemias, uh, depicted, but I was, I, I wanted to know more marvels. I wanted to know if the East had dangerous birds, for example, or a dragon or something. And, uh, there are, uh, various, uh, digitization projects underway. So who knows if we, uh, type that into the internet, we might be able to uh, find more of those pages in digital form. Uh, one thing that I thought was, uh, a, a, another interesting sort of look into the relationship between people and their precious objects, whether that is Books, because one of the things that was very apparent is the extent to which books are treasure. And it's, yeah. uh, it's rare that in our, uh, pseudo, uh, uh, medieval worlds that we recognize the extent to which, uh, these are extraordinarily valuable objects. But of course, if, and when you think about all of the man hours that go into, uh, creating them. Yeah, uh, over and above the, the gold uh, leaf and other precious materials used to make the illustrations or in some cases make the ink. So, for example, there was a set of the Gospels which had been uh, ransomed from the Vikings because, of course, the uh, later on the Vikings, uh, once everybody gets settled and prosperous, the, the Vikings uh, decide to come over and start raiding. And so one of the uh, the books there had uh, a, a nobleman had spent a lot of money to ransom this copy of the Gospels back from the Vikings, which, first of all, suggests you know, back and forth with the people who are trading with you. You have to go and establish a relationship in order to pay them off to get it back. And we think of, you know, people being held for ransom, but not uh, books necessarily. So that would make, uh, you know, th- that's a plot hook right there, right? That's your mission is mm-hmm. to go over and negotiate with the raiders who have stolen this precious book and uh, and possibly uh, get it back. And, uh, you know, adventurers being adventurers, perhaps the player characters decide to steal the book and keep the ransom. But, uh you know, that's on them. But because these items are so uh, valuable, uh, whether it's a silver brooch or a book, uh, curses would be inscribed on them. So, for example, uh, there's a copy of Bede's History, uh, which uh, was the history of the Anglo-Saxons by the first Anglo-Saxon historian. And having that book uh, meant you had something very valuable that you'd spend a lot of money to get, so you didn't want uh, book thieves, uh, who were a threat, uh, then as now, uh, from dealing with it. Well, how do you, you'd have no security system. So what do you do? Well, you write a curse invoking the protection of various biblical figures will rise up and smite the stealer of the book. Or there's a brooch and on the other side of the brooch is a curse, lists the name of the owner and, uh, and also describes the terrible things that will happen to someone who is not the owner who happens to wear that brooch. And the, and the, and the curse is of the same form. It's formally identical to Roman uh, and late Roman period curses uh, because they found a ring uh, that says that if you take this ring away from the guy who owned it, then uh, the god Nodens will hunt you down and kill you. And the god Venus will hunt you down and kill you. And in the brooch, it doesn't say Nodens and Venus because that would be pagan. It says the good Lord will hunt you down and kill you. He will curse you if you steal this brooch. Uh, the same thing with the, with that book. So the, the notion that something is so valuable that you inscribe not, you know, a death will come on swift wings, but the, you know, God, this has got the attention of the Lord when we made it and don't be borrowing books without permission, folks. And, uh, sort of an, uh, not overtly a curse, but in a, a similar vein, 
there was a, a charter uh, to a particular monastery. The the monks there the, there's a a running cycle where uh, monks start getting out of hand, and then a new set of rules has to be uh, brought into place to get them all back in order. Because of course uh, that's where you sent your second sons, and uh, uh, not everybody was a monk by choice and might have been off doing other uh, non-monk-like things and needed to be gotten back on the in in the in the good book or in the good charter. But of course. You didn't want to be have authority reasserted over you, so uh, this new charter with the new rules in it also has uh, images of uh, uh, Mary and James on it in order to uh, they're there. Their visual representation is lending authority to these new charters, so that you're not only messing with uh, the new uh, abbot uh, if you break the new charter, but look, there's Mary and James, and they're they want you to be a much better monk than you currently are. And uh, also interesting, uh, there were a couple of uh, remedy books, uh, which, of course, at this point are uh, curing a disease and uh, performing a spell are the same thing. Uh, and so there's uh, folk remedies that address illnesses that we know today or a medical condition. Uh, if you swallowed a bug accidentally, that was uh, we're pretty blasé about bug swallowing today. But at the time, that was thought to be a life-threatening emergency, so it gives you the procedure for that, as well as the one for uh, a remedy against elves, night goblins, and devils. Yeah. Uh, who obviously all belong to the same category. And then there was, uh, from a slightly later period, there was a very impressive-looking herbary that uh, they drew the uh, the plants in uh, maybe not uh, 19th century Germanic detail, but in pretty good detail for something that was done before the Battle of Hastings. You know, the, the, here's parsley, which is good for snake bite. And we can show you that by drawing a very, very good snake down below it. I mean, the snake was bad because he was biting people, but he was well drawn. Yes. My point. <laughs> it was a, yes. Uh, good as in uh, attractively rendered bad as in he was biting you. As in he was biting people. But the uh, that that was a, a reminder that much of what we think of as the, you know, medieval or in this case, you know, uh, Dark Ages uh, art is not inability to draw what they see. It is a deliberate stylistic choice to make the people so long and weird looking and, and have uh, big bobbly heads. But if you need to draw parsley, by God, you can draw parsley. It looks just like parsley does. Some of the manuscript pages on display were burned because the uh, most important collection of Anglo-Saxon uh, manuscripts was... Uh, the cotton collection? Yes, was burned in a, a fire in the 1700s. Uh, and, uh, uh, obviously some of those things were snatched from that very fire. Um, and that just sort of reminds you of the fragility of, uh, the book as an item that conveys history through time. So they had apparently Beowulf exists in one manuscript form, uh, which was at the show. So and was in that collection that caught fire, but did not itself burn to pieces. Right. So it's it's not even a question of one fire. It's a question of if Sir Robert Cotton had decided to store Beowulf over in the flammable wing, it's yes. gone. Now, presumably by that point, Beowulf was already had already been transcribed and, and printed. So it wouldn't have been Beowulf would not have been lost if that copy had been lost in that fire. But there would, would have been earlier points where there was no extra copies of Beowulf lying around. Right. Uh, and the, the, the Domesday book is there at the, at the show as well to mark the end of the Anglo-Saxon period and the beginning of the Norman period. So that's, uh, you know, as, as your, 
uh, ability to look at a, a touchstone artifact of uh, uh, Robin, history. Robin, uh, you are wrong. The first ever transcription and translation of the of, of Beowulf, the first transcription, was made in 1786, post-dates the fire. Post-dates the fire. So uh, we would not have Beowulf today then. If, uh, if that book had just been a little closer to that fire. And can you, you know, can you imagine the, uh, the, the difference in, uh, our sense of literary history without Beowulf? Good grief. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm so stressed out by that thought now that I better take solace in the warm, refreshing bath of a familiar commercial and then see what's on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And what do we see spread out on the cover of the gaming hut, but street maps of various cities and tiny matchbox cars that we are going to pretend are miniatures as opposed to just cool. Uh, because we are talking, per the request of Patreon backer Mikey Ham, about chase rules. Robin, what is your thought, coming from the clouds, your overarching thought on chase rules? I feel that I have only uh, relatively recently figured out what the heck to do uh, with uh, chases in terms of... Uh, because uh, we have always, I think, historically, uh, role-playing games have not succeeded in doing a good version of the uh, classic chase scene, which, of course, is a staple of uh, all kinds of different action movies, whether it be a, a stagecoach fleeing from outlaws or, you know, the classic run and fight with vehicles down the street, the... Uh, you know, your uh, Ronin or your Jason Bourne crash sequences or stuff from uh, James Bond. Or even in uh, Dungeons & Dragons, we normally think of, well, there's fleeing, which is a thing you do to get away from the fight, and can you get away from the fight or not? And so we have either given short shrift to chases or considered that the fight and the chase are two 
separate things. And what I realized recently in doing the chase rules for Feng Shui 2, uh, because Feng Shui 1 did not get to chase rules until someone put them in a supplement, and also for more recent iterations of gumshoe, specifically the quick shock system in the Yellow King role-playing game, is that chases and fights are the same. They're, the, the chase is a subset of the fight, and to look at them as two separate things explains why role-playing rules have traditionally uh, made a fun and exciting thing uh, kind of boring and disappointing. And you can see that very clearly in uh, the second Bourne movie, where the chase basically is a fight scene just between two cars, uh, in which they're just battered beyond recognition as Bourne and his uh, Soviet opponent, um, or Russian opponent, I guess, technically, are bouncing them all over the uh, the, the landscape there. Uh, the uh, other thing that chases have that fights do not have, of course, is a deliberate aiming toward escape as opposed to subduel. So the hero in a chase scene, as opposed to the hero in a fight scene, if you see Arnold Schwarzenegger in a fight scene, you you know he wants to, like, beat the other guy to death. But if you see him in a chase scene, he wants to get away from the bad guys that are chasing him. So it's two different uh, goals. Or, or, or conversely, to catch up to the bad guys right, in yeah, order to... Yeah. But either way, escape is, is a goal in the, in, this, in the scene in a way that it is not in a fight, or in the majority of fights. And so, that is why, in Night's Black Agents, I added the tracker, the, the lead, and at some point, if the lead gets too big, the chase scene is over, because the one party has escaped the other party. Uh, and that, I think, is sort of the missing component of chase scene as fight, is you also have to have some sort of time or distance mechanic, or ideally both of them resolved into a single mechanic called lead that because tracking two mechanics suddenly becomes like bookkeeping, not like uh, exciting uh, chase action. And, and adding that component is why I think that Knights Black Agents, not alone among systems, but uh, maybe alone among recent systems, sort of uh, has a, a better structural approach towards, towards chase mechanics than others might. Right, because it, if the chase is a fight, right. uh, then it is a fight that may or may not have a different end state. Um, so the uh, possible outcomes are, are first of all, uh, you know, who's fleeing who. So uh, if the player characters are fleeing the, the bad guys, they don't want to... Uh, their goal has shifted from take out the bad guys to get away from the bad guys. So the end state of that fight is uh, you get a permanent enough separation from the uh, your pursuers that you are no longer functionally being pursued and that that is the exciting uh, end of that fight is that you are huffing and puffing up against a wall or uh, screaming away on the highway or... Or jump uh, into the subway just as the doors close and the bad guys are left on the platform w- waving their arms. Right. So something very conclusive has happened in which you are now uh, safe from further menace by the bad guys. The... Uh, other half of that is that if you're chasing the bad guys, you either, uh, uh, capture them or, uh, or take them out entirely, which is the normal end state of, of any fight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's also the possibility that, uh, if the bad guys catch up with you, that, uh, you are either, uh, uh killed or captured. And so, uh, keeping those in mind that you have to have some sort of, uh, system, uh, whether it's, uh, straight up hit points or there's a new set of points that we're introducing that are, uh, chase points or what have you, that what, whatever your chase does is that you are, uh, moving conclusively toward any of those, uh, different end states. And so there has to be some sort of marker to tell you, uh, and if it's take out the other guys, it's, well, they're all taken out. Um, if it's capture them, you've, 
put them up against, uh, you know, they're, you back them into a corner. They can no longer run away. And so they have to, uh, surrender. And, uh, and then there's, you know, the previous option where, where you've gotten away. So there has to be, uh, something, some total that either ticks down or, 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 uh, reaches to a, a hit point threshold or, or whatever you want to call it that brings you along that way. And then you just need the round like steps, the back and forth of, Oh, we're getting away. Oh no, they're coming again. Oh, we've, climb down the stairs. Are we safe? Are we safe? No, they're following us still. They've knocked the door. So you have to have the, the sort of same back and forth that you have in any sort of action sequence or, or fight uh, where uh, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. And uh, the how, how to implement that is then just a matter of building that onto the chassis of whatever the uh, you know, basic rules engine that you're dealing with is. Yeah, the, the James Bond 007 from Richter Games had a pretty good, although I still think a little fiddly, chase mechanic in which uh you bid uh on how high uh, uh how dangerous you wanted to make the chase and so it was like how fast are you going to go if your car uh you know can go up to such and such a red line uh how tricky do you want to make the maneuver etc 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 and anyone who didn't ba- basically everyone has to go at that level and then uh the the person who bid high uh they decide who goes first and uh then you pick your maneuvers and do your maneuvers and you again are playing out to a certain range and once you've gotten to I forget if it's extreme plus 2 or extreme plus 3 there's some level of um uh of happening that if you are at extreme range and you're the last to go then you win and so it's the same uh range heat mechanic it's just built uh, more solidly into the different maneuvers than I did in Nice Black Agents where the maneuvers open and, and shut lead, but generally a lot of them are just to screw with the other cars, as in most chase movies where, you know, seeing the other guy's motorcycle go into the um, snowplow or into the cafe is just as big a victory as actually expanding the distance because now you've got one fewer French cop or uh, a, a specter agent chasing you. One thing that will happen is if, if you're, if the rule system you're building a chase sequence onto is too involved and has too many steps that it will, by treating chases as fights, it will then expose the slow plotting nature of, of the fight rules engine. If, <laughs> if you have that, because we are somehow inured to the fact that, you know, a fight that takes a few would take a few seconds of fight choreography when filmed takes an hour with, you know, multiple steps every round and check this against that. And this, and then suddenly the, the putting that into, and it's a high speed chase that we are, slowly rolling with a enervated manner at the level. Okay. Now check the engine level roll. And this is that, um, it really pushes the designer to something that is, uh, uh, streamlined, uh, because if, the, if there's that big a gulf between what you're supposed to be imagining and what you're actually doing at the table, I think that throws into shame the whole process of what you're doing, whether it's a stand up fight or, or a chase or not. Yeah, in the uh Fall of Delta Green, when I was trying to sort of convey bits of the of the chase mechanics without going back straight to full thriller chase mechanics, which are good in the same way that a fight scene can be good if it takes an hour, if that's the focus of the story. In a, in a superhero game, you'd feel a little sad and disappointed if the fight scene didn't take a long time to resolve and didn't involve all your special Quotron powers and bouncing around. Uh, similarly with the chase scene, if that's the focus of the adventure... Uh, you want the chase scene to be fast. It'd be a, a sad thing if James Bond just, you know, 
hits it and his Aston Martin can do 180 and the cars behind him can do 100 and boom, he disappears. Goodbye. Thanks. Um, that'd be terrible. Right. Cause there's pacing. Right. And then there's total time at the table. So if you spend an hour in a chase sequence, but the GM is moving it along and you feel all sorts of, uh, you know, and it feels fast within that time frame. It's like, wait, a, a great chase sequence tonight. It took an hour, but it felt like everybody was pelting, you know, that's great. But if it's like, if the pacing is also slowed, Okay, now we look up on the oil loss table. That's the problem. Yeah, and so with uh, with with uh, Fall of Delta Green, I suggest uh, the three and out method, which I think captures some of the chase uh, tension back and forth and back and forth. So you do a best two out of three rounds, and as in uh, both James Bond and Nice Black Agents, the fleeing player can always determine the the target number to roll against. So if you're running, you can take a bigger chance and force the the pursuer to catch up to you. And if they can't make that, then you win. And that's, that's how it works. And so the, um, uh, the goal is, uh, to sort of recreate some of the decision beats and moments in a chase without necessarily going, you know, letting your full, uh, freaking out and just doing a chase scene that takes not just, you know, 10 minutes, uh, to play, but 10 minutes of incredibly beautifully choreographed automobile fighting to visualize out on the screen. Right. But if you just want something that gets the sense of this is a different kind of a skill than a fight is, I think that the, the fall of Delta green compromise, uh, which I'm pretty sure I put into vampire is, is the way to do it. And finally, uh, turning a fight into a chase is also a way to make a missile fire combat more interesting because the, again, sort of the default is, uh, oh, there's a couple of missile rounds where the characters fire at each other as they close with each other to a melee fight. Um, and so it's always sort of like the appetizer, uh, before the, uh, the fight. And, uh, also if you've got someone who specialized as the missile guy or the sniper, he, you know, uh, winds up being kind of left out after a, a while in a classic fight. But if you have the, uh, characters shooting back and forth at each other while they're on the move, uh, whether it's, you know, the raiders on their, uh, and their bison and their zebras, they come, uh, toward you in the, in the deserts of Prax or, uh, you know, your classic, uh, shoot each other from cars, uh, action movie chase sequence. That is, uh, the element of mobility is what makes, uh, a, uh, a fight with those weapons, uh, suddenly as, as exciting as it is, uh, in a movie. And since we've been talking about pacing and the importance of getting away from things trying to kill you, I think it's time that we, uh, can uh, run huffing and puffing into this commercial and hope that the monsters pass us by. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. 
He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Work the angles to keep this podcast alive alongside such Patreon backers as... Rafe Ball. Chris Lighton. Andrew Collins. Darren Dumay. And Ethan James. So regular listeners know what's coming up next. Uh, if you uh, know our ways, you know that... Uh, at Dragon Meat Ken on the on the Monday afterwards, there's a a field trip uh, to Treadwell's Occult book, Bookshop on Store Street, and then we just pop down the way down Tottenham Court uh, Road to uh, Foils, and Ken acquires a stack of books. In fact, this is the uh, activity that inaugurated Ken's bookshelf and inspired uh, this segment. And this year, Ken, the thing that was different was the exchange rate. So you mm-hmm. accumulated uh, perhaps your biggest pile of books ever. Uh, you won two free tote bags from Treadwell's. That's right. That does not often happen. Yes. Uh, they were a uh, gift with purchase, as it were. Um, and so uh, without further ado, uh, let's all start pawing through this uh, stack of books that you acquired. The rest of us will have to paw through vicariously, but you could paw through physically uh, if you wished. Um, so the first one on the list here is... Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States by James C. Scott. Uh, this is a, a, a historical survey with a theory, right? Yep. Uh, James C. Scott is uh, one of the only anti-state political scientists uh, publishing reputably. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of, of crazy people off at some weird press in, uh, in nowhere land. But, I mean, James C. Scott is a genuine, honest-to-God historian. And just like for a 100 or so years, we had Marxist political scientists informing their studies with the way that they imagined the world to work. And we've had uh, Whig political historians for the century before that doing it. Now we have an anti-statist or possibly even anarchist. I think that you would call him maybe a quasi-anarchist or a demi-anarchist. He did a book called Two Cheers for Anarchism, so two-thirds anarchist. I don't know. But anyway, he's anti-state is the larger point. And when you are a political scientist, studying the state is sort of what you do, and you fall into that. And it'd be kind of like being an anti-bird ornithologist in a way. Um, <laughs> if you if you come there and you say, birds are jerks, and also they terrified the poor Anglo-Saxons for yeah, some reason. 
Heck, the Anglo-Saxons saw the Dickens for 200 right. years. Yeah. And so he has the opinion that perhaps state is not an unalloyed good, that it involves taxation and uh, uh, coerced behavior and all manner of bad things that we shouldn't like so much. And his book, uh, Against the Grain, is the theory of state formation that is against, uh, not just against the grain of current thinking, which is that once you started building uh, canal-driven agriculture, there was such a giant food surplus that people flocked to it and said, give me some of that food surplus, even if I have to dig a canal. Uh, Scott's theory is, no, you have to sort of force a bunch of people to dig a canal before you get that food surplus. And once you've started by forcing, you really don't stop ever until the barbarians overwhelm you. And so he is against literally the grain. He's saying, what's so great about agriculture? Hunter gatherers are able to feed themselves uh, on a caloric level that surpasses uh, primitive agriculture states. If we'd all just stayed happy caribou hunters, everything would be fine, except admittedly, there'd be fewer books. So his his, uh, anti-state history of state formation is at the very least a valuable corrective, and at the very most will, uh, like his other books have done, uh, sort of open up uh, some different ways of seeing and different ways of thinking, which is all of the good in history. Uh, especially when you're not bringing aliens or or uh, weird conspiracies into it. You're just saying, this is what we know about uh, forced state uh, behavior. Why do we assume it's different in the Bronze Age? Uh, we shouldn't. And that uh, is uh, part of our modern moral structure, I guess. And James C. Scott is at least doing it uh, in a productive uh, way for historical speculation. So good for him. I'm also a big fan of his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is about uh, Southeast Asia and about the highlands of Southeast Asia and how they chose, in his reading, to not be parts of states and not that they are primitive savages, that they are people who looked at what being part of a state meant and said, no thanks, we'll give up literacy and agriculture if that's what it takes to keep our freedom. No canal digging for me. Well, from being uh, conked over the head by the oppressive state, we move to being conked over the head by individuals and and then by the oppressive state (laughs) and criminals of 17th century Britain by Daniel J. Codd. And this is uh, first because I'm writing a book about uh, 1630s London and one hopes that at least some of these guys uh, are from 1630s London or can be extended to be examples of that. Um, another thing is just who doesn't love true crime? Uh, certainly no one in my house doesn't love true crime. And finally, it's from the good people at Pen and Sword. And my theory is that there was a guy who used to work for Sutton Books. And that guy was, is maybe like Lovecraft was beset by telepathic dreams from me or in some other wise had seen into my soul and only commissioned books he knew I wanted to buy. And I think the good people at Pen and Sword said, <laughs> We can get him. We can get that guy. And That's if we a viable get the Ken business Hyde, model. Exactly. Only published books Ken wants to buy. And uh, Daniel J. Codd, the author of Crimes and Criminals, is the lucky beneficiary of this policy because I don't know how much you guys know about 17th century Britain, but it's it's lots of stabbings and uh, highwaymanry and all kinds of cool behavior ending on the public gallows, as right. is the way. So, also, Mandrake production goes up. Uh, up until the gallows point, it's all the sorts of things that player characters want to be doing. Exactly. This is basically uh, early modern role-playing, the source book. Uh, next up, we have Persia in the Great Game by Anthony Wynn. And this is a uh, book about, primarily it's about a guy named uh, Brigadier General Sir Percy Molesworth Sykes. And just by that, you should know that he's he's a fun guy to know. Um, he 
spent uh, a lot of time working for uh, the Indian Army, uh, which had sort of its own um, intelligence division that was mostly soldiers like uh, Sir Percy that were, you know, sent off to the frontier world to mess with uh, the Russians and then uh, became uh, a part of the diplomatic service and the intelligence department uh, as well. And during World War One, was sent into Persia because of his extensive knowledge of parts east of Suez to go and stop the Russian attempt to take over uh, Persia as part of their needs in World War One. because they may be our allies, but that doesn't mean they get Persia. And so he's able to um, uh, basically attempt to support the Russian war effort while preventing them from taking over Persia during the course of the war. Hence the great game, because the great game is the contest between Britain and Russia for everywhere between India and Siberia. And the Russians won some of it. The British won some of it. The people between India and Siberia, one can argue, perhaps won none of it. We remain in the Tradecraft Hut subsection of Ken's bookshelf with Mossad, The Greatest Missions of the Israeli Secret Service by Michael Bar-Zahar and Nassim Mishal. And uh, your interest in this is self-explanatory. So uh, how does this look? Because it says Mossad, Greatest Expeditions right there. Um, part of it is that there aren't a lot of great books about the Mossad. So I'm hoping that this is at least an okay book about the Mossad. There's one called uh, something like Gideon's Princes. That's a sort of a general overview, but that's by now about 20 years old. Uh, this at least is a new book, so it will have, uh, the missions from the last 20 years, some of them. Uh, and then also it's a, it's an interesting look at a, uh, intelligence service that was born in crisis and has sort of stayed on crisis mode regardless of what the outside world looks like. And so that's just, again, you talk about your player character type options. Mossad are the guys out there throwing limpet mines at people's cars, not just sitting back at home reading a bunch of, um, uh, satellite in, uh, intercepts. Uh, the way that uh, our uh, intelligence service does. So they're much more player character in that way. Uh, now we have a, a book that can be supplementary reading for your Dream Hounds of Paris campaign, and this is The Secret Paris of the 30s by Brassai. Uh, Brassai was a, uh, is the uh, de art of a Hungarian uh, sculptor and writer and photographer and scenester, so he was uh, part of that exciting uh, social scene in, in an art scene in Paris in the 30s. And uh, he wrote a biography once of Henry Miller, and Henry Miller said he didn't really check his facts, and we tried to avoid that guy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but still, I'm sure this is all full of things that are, uh, uh, if not uh, strictly accurate, uh, as Hen Henry Miller would say, at least they'll be too good to check. Exactly. And they'll be full of the exciting and sordid demi-monde, uh, or bas-monde even, of Paris, uh, which is good for your, uh, not just your, um, uh, Dreamhounds campaign, but also your Bookhounds campaign, because as the Dreamhounds, uh, book mentions, lots of bookstores in Paris. So if you are playing any kind of Trail of Cthulhu game, if it's got anything happening in Paris, this would be a great resource in addition to just being another great, uh, sort of document, I guess, about the, the louche and, and, uh, potentially creepy side of the 1930s, which is just good material for all of us trail people. And, uh, and really for a lot of stuff, I guess. Uh, next I see you've, uh, you, there's a title for Virgil here. Uh, yeah, the British is. Museum Book of Cats by Juliet Clutton Brock. That one is mostly a, uh, a, a victory of the, of the pounds, uh, weak exchange rate. Uh, it was like, I think six pounds. And it's like the British Museum takes their whole their whole collection and they find all the stuff with cats in it and they put it in just for nice ladies uh, who have cats and me 
uh, to, to love and to buy. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's got anything scholarly, although I'll bet, uh, we'd be able to go through and do a couple of few segments out of the weird stuff that's in there. One of the things that was at the British Library when we were there, we didn't go see it. They had their own little cat exhibit and, uh, I saw it on the wall and, uh, thought, gosh, it'd be nice to know what that would be. Maybe the British Museum Book of Cats has got part of that stuff. Uh, there are certain authors, uh, who, uh, their arrangement with you is, uh, they publish a book and you buy that book. And, uh, if not at the top of that list, very near to the top uh, is Adrian Mayer, and her new one is Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. The uh, subtitle is quite explanatory, and it says Adrian Mayer. Do people need to know anything else before putting it on their wish lists? I mean, I guess that they should also need to know that the um, uh, automata were being made by the uh, Hellenistic uh, artists and engineers and scientists uh, the, of the period of my game, Poikula Hellenistica. So maybe there could be clockwork uh, robot people that show up in a game if you are playing Hellenistica, as indeed you might do, depending on if I ever get around to publishing this thing. But either way, it'll be great stuff to throw at my players, because I think that they haven't fought enough robots yet, and maybe some robots would be good for them. I think pretty well any group of player characters could stand to be fought by more robots. Yeah. Um, and perhaps a place that they could fight robots is uh, after Alexander, the time of the Diodaki, 323 to 281 BC, by Edward Anson and Victor Alonso Troncoso. So this is absolutely still also uh, uh, in your uh, general area of your uh, Hellenistic adventures. Yes, very much. Uh, this is just straight up material for my game. Uh, there are uh, fun chapters uh, such as Strabo, India and Barbecued Brahmins and the uh, Diadaki and the Zoology of Kingship, the Elephants. And it's about where were all the elephants and who liked them and why? And then there's also some stuff about stuff that's a little earlier than my game that is still sort of important to the uh, notion of it is just was there, um, uh, was there a continuity between Alexander's forces and those of the successors? There, there's a, the, the sort of a legend that all the guys who fought with Alexander stayed on and the silver shields, the Argeraspids became a much coveted special force that, you know, went around the Mediterranean settling matters one way or the other until they were finally betrayed at, at a great battle. And this guy is going to probably fun ruin that legend because that's what people do in uh, books, but it'll give you lots more <laughs> stuff about that. And then also, uh, many people people, uh, the Diadaki era, the Alexandrian era in general, is a period where the role of women in political power was probably better than it was any other time in the Greek uh, history down to, you know, the, the modern era, because there were very, very clear cases of royal queens that exerted very strong royal power with the general approval and acceptance of the of the state and the people at large. And that was something that the Greeks you know, that was one of the ways they would shorthand is if you were a barbarian, you were ruled by women. Ugh. And now the Greeks themselves are being ruled by women and not kicking up their traces about it. So it says something about the role of women in that society that is uh, very different from classical Greece and certainly from archaic Greece. And and so there's some good stuff about that. Uh, so speaking of your classical murder hobos, uh, next we have the Jason voyage by Tim Severin, uh, just based on the title uh, there's all sorts of ways this book could go. This falls into our classic Ken's bookshelf, scholarly or kooky. Uh, which way does this one fall? All right. Tim Severin is the guy who famously built himself a, a leather boat 
and tried to sail to Canada with it. And indeed, he eventually did. And that proves that St. Brendan could have sailed to Canada if he'd known it was there and known which current to go in. Um, or maybe it didn't prove any such thing. But the larger point is that Tim Severin sort of made his bones by reenacting and recreating uh, great voyages of the world, especially imaginary ones like those of Sinbad. So he has a Sinbad book uh, that, that did the same thing. And this is his Jason book. And he got some people to build himself a, a 20 or galley, which is fewer than the Argo. I'll point out the Argo had 50 oars um, and uh, sailed it his own self uh, along the coast of uh, northern Turkey into uh, what was then Soviet Georgia and is now free, uh, free Georgia. And back in the day was Kolkis, the legendary kingdom of the Golden Fleece, ruled by sorceresses like Medea. And um, uh, one assumes that he will go along and say, look at that. The sunlight on these rocks looks just like harpies or something equally tiresome. But at the larger point, um, uh, we will at least have a lived experience of what it's like to sail around in a galley that is not the sort of thing you get very often now and again. And he's a good writer, so it, it's it's not bad. And he's not a racist. He's not um, Thor Heiderall, where he's all like, no, this has to have been Vikings. It couldn't have been um, uh, it, it couldn't have been brown people doing all this stuff. He's 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 a strong dude. Next up, we have Legend. The Genesis of Civilization by David Roll. I know which side of the creek this falls into, but why don't you tell our listeners? Uh, David Roll, God bless him, uh, began as a Vilikovskian, someone who believes in the crazy nuts theory that uh, the planet Venus was shot out of uh, Jupiter and bounced around the solar system, causing miracles and uh, creating the Exodus and all kinds of other fun stuff before everything settled down around 600 BC. And that if historians didn't believe it, that just proved that their histories were all wrong. And he uh, it may or may not have abandoned the more colorful bits of Vilikovkianism. Only we, only he knows his heart. But he certainly stopped publishing to that extent and is just saying, oh, the chronologies are all wrong. And I have a new chronology that just so happens to make the Bible narrative uh, more plausible. Now, let us preface this by saying the old chronology could use some kicks in the head. Uh, Dendrochronology and conventional Egyptian chronology are about 150 years apart. They're, uh, sadly for David Roll, 150 years apart in the other direction. But still, Egyptologists are jerks, and we can't let uh, the fact that a crazy person says that uh, take away from the fundamental truth of that. However, in legend, uh, David Roll is using his magical new chronology to discover where the Garden of Eden is. And uh, spoilers, it's in Azerbaijan. So uh, there you go. I've just saved you the effort. But I'm sure there's many more wonderful things uh, in that book than just exciting news about Azerbaijan. Uh, so next time you're going there to make a deal with a, uh, a, a local oligarch, you can uh, check out the Garden of Eden. Exactly. And next we come to Dragons, Serpents, and Slayers in the classical and early Christian worlds by Daniel Ogden. Uh, nothing could be more up our alley as role players than uh, dragons and serpents and also slayers. So uh, this obviously leapt right onto your hands. Yeah, Daniel Ogden is a real scholar. He's a real classicist. Um, he has a, a very good book on Greek and Roman necromancy that I uh, am I recommend wholeheartedly. Uh, this is just a bunch of stories of dragons and who killed them and giant snakes and giant worms. And uh, they are not the standard medieval ones. They are the ancient ones, in which many cases got recast and recolored into medieval stories, but in some cases have their own weird and unique characteristics. So he goes all the way back to Hercules killing dragons and all the way forward to one assumes uh, St. Margaret killing dragons. And uh, so the, the, the combo there between uh, 
the classical and the early Christian world. Uh, it will, you know, not only demonstrate some continuity of intellectual thought that people often underestimate, but also will give me lots of cool dragon stories. And again, uh, very disappointingly so far, my player characters have only fought two dragons. So maybe I can find some more for them to go after. Dragons and robots. That's what we like. Uh, perhaps, perhaps a dragon that's friends with a robot. Yeah, or friends with a bunch of robots. Um, well, that's all the bo- Oh no, that's half the books. Uh, it's time for an ad break. We'll be back with more. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? And we're back uh, with more of Ken's bookshelf, and uh, here's where we're going to go deep into the Treadwells portion of the uh, of purchasing spree with Hakate Sotera, a study of Hakate's roles in the Chaldean oracles and related literature by Sarah Isles Johnston. And this one is, is very scholarly indeed, right? Yes. Uh, Sarah Isles Johnston is a real scholar. Uh, the thing that's sort of surprising to me is that she shows up in Chaldean oracles at all. It's very strange that the Chaldeans who are, live in good old Babylon uh, give a rat's ass about Hecate one way or the other, but I guess if you get conquered by the Greeks, something that comes with them is cool, cool Hecate. And so Terra means the savior. So we have all manner of interesting thoughts about Hecate as savior, a, a role you do not, I think, normally uh, see her as. Uh, this is uh, Sarah Johnson's doctoral dissertation, basically, in which she finds this exciting new thing for... Um, uh, for Hecate to have done, and I'm looking very much forward to it. Uh, now, the uh, eye-bleeding teal on the cover of this book is is still stuck in my retina. This is <laughs> Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic by Dr. Stephen Skinner. Uh, so is the, is the content as teal as the cover? Uh, the content is uh Dr. Stephen Skinner as he informs you there on his uh on his on a, he's a he's a doctor he doesn't just make stuff up he does <laughs> um but he makes stuff up based on the actual texts which is a step in in his favor and we should all praise him for it uh he goes and he digs through real honest to god grimoires real honest to god books by cunning men real honest to god in this case greco egyptian papyri and attempts to say given that i know how magic works being a practitioner of golden dawn magic what can i pull out of these 
uh, texts to figure out how they practiced magic. Now, the trouble, of course, being that if you are a genuine magical thinker and you look at other people's magic, you will interpret them often through the lens of your own methodology. And the question then becomes, to what extent is Stephen Skinner imposing a system on what were, in fact, about 400 years worth of uh, steal this ring slash man slash donkey and Ammon slash Jesus slash the Virgin Mary will curse you? Uh, and what was an actual intellectual set or sets of, of, of thought and, and ways of approaching the world. And you can make arguments, real historians, real, uh, anthropologists can make arguments back and forth about the degree to which the, uh, Egyptian magical papyri or the Greek, uh, Egyptian magical papyri were systemic and to what extent they were, um, epiphenomenal to, uh, Ptolemaic thought and late classical thought. But I think Dr. Skinner is going to err on the side of a singular magical tradition behind them all, which may or may not be good history, but it is great role-playing material. So I'm hoping to dig some good stuff out of him again for Hellenistic magic, because that's the era that the Greco-Egyptian papyri generally come from. There are many of them are a little past the Hellenistic era. They're in the Roman period, but you know what? No one cares. Uh, so if you have a dance skill on your character sheet and are hoping to know what to do with it, why, uh, here comes Elizabeth Wayland Barber and her book, The Dancing Goddesses, Folklore, Archaeology and the Origins of European Dance. Yeah, this one was one, it's by Norton and Company. It's by a real publisher. So that's something that's interesting. Elizabeth Whalen Barber, I think, is a real folklorist. Uh, she, if, if not, she certainly has, has sold, uh, Norton on something. She is doing, um, uh, Basically, a look at the mythological figures, which are these dancing women. And if you go uh, all over, uh, certainly the Slavic part of Europe, but uh, in good old Fraserian fashion, uh, the Slavic Europe is the oldest, most primitive Europe. So it must hold the legends that were told in Italy and France and Britain before they became civilized. Uh, and then many of them do, in fact, have uh, various fairy maidens that indeed sometimes dance just as regular maidens do. So I think Elizabeth Wayland Barber is saying there is a large substrate of behavior. It goes back to Neolithic times and that this is where uh, dance comes from in Europe is that this uh, traditional dancing uh, lore and, and, and uh, modality that is passed down from, from ancient times. Now, I don't know anything about dance. I don't know anything about uh, about uh, Slavic archaeology, really. But I'm betting you that's not the case. I'm betting you dance emerges from an immediate community for immediate community needs and is very strongly based on the kind of music you can make, uh, not necessarily on the fact that we got two legs and they can only go a certain number of directions. So I'm hoping that she at the very least gives us a plausible magic dance that one can then draw up. And I, I will say parenthetically that seeing the new Suspiria's modern dance as black magic is not not the reason I, I bought this book. But uh, but there's other possibilities for, I mean, modern dance troops become very big in the Trail of Cthulhu in the 20s and 30s. The, that's when they're rethinking the dance and trying to break it down and go back to, to older, uh, more elemental dance forms as well as more avant-garde ones. So there's a lot of possibility there for your Trail of Cthulhuing if you are looking to uh, Im- imply that dances are magical over and above just being dancing, which is magical enough. Uh, now, next up, we have something that uh, seems very scholarly, uh, but I think Michel Foucault is, is in the index a whole lot. Uh, but I, I think it turns out to be uh, perhaps more uh, sideways than that. 
It's The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of the Human Sciences by Jason A. Josephson Storm. Right. And the A has a, a macron over it, so it's even better than a regular A. Um, and uh, if you're named Josephson Storm, like being named Sir Percy Molesworth Sykes, you should get to write your own ticket. I think that that's fair. The, uh, argument is, and, and on its face, the argument is legitimate, which is why it's from the University of Chicago Press, not from a lesser publisher. But the argument is that in the 19th century, uh, when people were writing the, um, uh, and broadly anti-clerical history of, uh, the intellectual world, they said, come modernity, come Galileo and Newton, come uh, Copernicus and Leibniz. People just stopped believing in magic and they stopped having magicians and wizards and astrologers and they set their foot on the way of modernity and enlightenment and we've never looked back ever, ever since, which was <laughs> nonsense because uh, Newton People was an alchemist. People stopped being nutty and that was it. Right. And this was an attempt to write down what they thought should have happened as opposed to what did happen. And I think there has been decades of historiography beginning with, um, uh, I think Owen Thomas is kind of the last gasp of that religion, the decline of magic. And even he is like documenting these magical beliefs that continue all the way through the period. And then was it Owen Thomas or Kevin Thomas? It's Keith Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. I'll get it right at some point. Anyway, the the fact that, uh, as Joseph Storm points out, even in the period when these guys are writing, there is a gigantic occult revival with spiritualism, astrology coming back, uh, swinging, uh, people joining magical secret societies, as uh, the cons- consulting occultist never tires of pointing out, and all of these other things are happening. And then Joseph Storm goes the extra level and says that the founding figures of the social sciences are themselves product of an occult milieu. You, which, while I am natively sympathetic to the argument, I think may be the point at which the bridge goes too far, as Robin indicates. And I think that at some point, up until maybe the 1940s or 50s, everyone with a college degree knew each other. That was how college worked. So saying that someone who is a pioneering scholar of uh, anthropology is friends with a magician is not the same thing as it would be now. Uh, Robin, what you... Uh, developed a reaction to the book. Um, do you think I'm on the right track here? Well, I'm just repeating your uh, interpretation <laughs> of the book back to right. you. So, right. Uh, so undoubtedly, we're both right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, uh, a book that has both Foucault and Crowley in the index can't help but be a fun, uh, valuable book on some level. Uh, right. Because originally when I looked at it, it seemed to be about, you know, the separation of the sciences and, and magic. And so the reason I hit the index was to see if Camille Flammarion was in there. Instead, it was Michel Foucault. Right. Uh, so that, that tells you everything. And, and it, it also tells you that uh, Joseph Storm has not done as deep a dive as he might believe that he has, which is uh, something we always like to know. Um, speaking of, uh, of a deep dive, we're uh, deep in the subterranean depths with Haunted London Underground by Alan Brooke and David Brandon. This is another one of those uh, uh, victories of the week exchange rate. Uh, it was about, I think, six or seven pounds. And it has ghost stories that take place in the London Underground. And there, I saw one section at the front that says, London Underground stations from A to Z. And if it lives up to having a ghost for every single stop on the London Underground or even for the Circle Line, I will be a happy camper. Right. Um, again, nothing is going to be as good as uh, Lisa Goldstein's book about the Underground, which, if you will give me two seconds, 
Dark Cities Underground, which posits that the Circle Line is actually a secret uh, ritual recreation of the myth of Isis and Osiris. But you know what? Ghost stories are a good second guess, and I will uh, happily take that on board as well. Well, let me know if there's a ghost story that explains uh, why the last set of doors doesn't open at the Clapham Common stop. Right. Yes, the, the 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 beautiful maiden walked out, or possibly danced out, and was trapped by them. So next, we are uh, into the uh, the crime blotter section, specifically uh, the uh, Ripperology subsection for uh, they all love Jack busting the Ripper. This is by the the director of With Nail and I. It uh, has become a Ripperologist and has written. So this is by Bruce Robinson, and apparently Bruce Robinson doesn't use the computer. Or he doesn't like the internet at all. Uh, uh, one of the things that is sort of, uh, in this book is sort of his distrust of all this internet ripperology and how lame and stupid it is. And you have to go back to original sources and look at the, the documents yourself. And God bless him. Uh, he's also very, very mad at Victorians, uh, which I guess if you're a modern day Englander, sometimes you still are. I thought we'd all gotten over that a while back, but Bruce is old now. And maybe is still mad like he was in the 40s and 50s. But uh, Bruce says, again, spoilers, that uh, the Ripper was Michael Maybrick, uh, who is a um, uh, composer uh, and singer. He became the organist to the London Freemasons somehow, succeeded either Gilbert or Sullivan in the role. I forget which one. And he was the brother uh, of James Maybrick, who himself became a uh, ripper murderer, a suspect, uh, by dint of being poisoned by his wife, Florence Maybrick. And this is as though you decided that, you know, uh, one of the uh, people OJ killed was actually the Zodiac killer. It's that level of ridiculousness. Uh, but there were some forged diaries that went along with that and uh, a, a great fun. Uh, Bruce Robinson believes in the forged diaries, but does not believe that uh, uh, Maybrick is the killer. He believes, I guess, that Michael Maybrick sort of messed with his brother's mind and then poisoned him and then framed Florence for it. I think is how it all uh, boils out there. But Michael Maybrick is your new is your new ripper, um, uh, your new killer, and he bases that on going back to the letters, which virtually everyone will tell you are uh, hoaxes, clumsy hoaxes at the time, and saying Michael Maybrick being a musician, was traveling all over England so he could have sent those letters from all those different places, though without providing a itinerary of Michael Maybrick's travels, this becomes less convincing than it might be. You should look that up on the internet. And also that the people who were saying that they were hoaxes were the Freemasons who had a reason to cover up this Masonic set of murders. <laughs> and uh, while you know, hats off to that grand jeté uh, into crazy town... Um, uh, and it's certainly, it, it's full of, of excellent writing because obviously Bruce Robinson is a, is a terrific writer. So that alone, uh, would be a reason to buy it. Even if you don't buy the rest of the story. Right. Well, obviously I, I would say that the, the real, any real failure there to understand what's going on is that he relied on, uh, you know, original documents as opposed to psychic powers. But here right. comes Pamela Ball with Jack the Ripper. A psychic investigation, and I believe b bells literally went off in uh, Treadwell's, well, <laughs> metaphorically went off, uh, as you held that up uh, in front of the assembled crowd. I was I was very, very happy uh, with that. That was a, a lovely uh, find. It is almost certainly terrible uh, in the sense that it's going to be uh, as superficial and garbagey as all popular Ripper books are. 
my only hope is that we will know so much more about how one psychically investigates Jack the Ripper after reading it than before. But again, it was, it was dirt cheap. Uh, it was priced to move, I'm sure. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you read the title, Robin. You know why it, it, it had to be bought. That's right. just the way of the world. Yes. Uh, I think, I think we all know. And so can move on to <laughs> a supernatural war, magic, divination, and faith during the first world war by Owen Davies. Uh, we have to uh, dock at a point for having the same word in the title and the subtitle, but uh, after that, uh, what are we looking at? Uh, we're looking at the fact that the uh, the First World War creates this revival of spiritualism, basically, and uh, the, the the supernatural beliefs that we talked about are that are that are coming up in the Belle Epoque uh, and how they play out in uh, World War One. Uh, I suspect this is Owen Davies writing a book to tie into the centennial um, and uh, it being Owen Davies, it is going to frustratingly combine excellent research with thinness of approach. Uh, I have yet to find an Owen Davies book that is fully satisfactory to me. Um, and I always know that he can do better, which is the really annoying thing. I think his book about the cunning man is actually his best one, but he has a book, for example, grimoires, a history. And you tuck in and you say, Oh, this is going to be so good. And, uh, it's not as good as all that. There's, there's some stuff that you didn't know, but not as much as you should have not known. Um, but also, uh, remember the prophecies of Nostradamus being a big thing in the fight against Hitler. And I guess to another extent, the fight for Hitler, uh, apparently good old Nostradamus put on the khaki and Feldgrau for world war one as well. And that, that will be news to me. And so that chapter will, will certainly give me some information. And I assume, uh, Mackin's, uh, the Bowman and other, uh, and the, the, the legend, uh, the, the figure in white and all the other sort of superstitions of the trenches will, uh, will get a look in as well. It, it's going to be a Gollum Offrey. Parts of it are going to be really well sourced and really deep dived and parts of it are just going to be infuriatingly thin because it says Owen Davies right on the cover. But by God, he's out there writing the books that other people aren't writing. So I shouldn't drag him too hard. Tobias Churton has a new one. Alistair Crowley in America, art, espionage and sex magic in the new world. Yes. And, uh, we both have the same basic opinion of Churton. Um, my basic reason for continuing to buy them is, at the very least, he does the reading, even if he presents it in a fairly superficial fashion, and his footnoting is not bad. So I can look in Churton for the thing I want to know, and then go to where he read it and get the actual information. So he's like my <laughs> overpaid research assistant, I guess, right. in that there's, way. There's, uh, he did the book on a cult. Uh, Paris, it was uh, very useful for Yellow King, but uh, there was a lot of skimming of the sections where uh, the thought of the occult figures is being uh, rhapsodized over. Uh, and yeah. you just uh, skip through the facty bits is the, yep. the trick there. And he is, I guess, as you as you allude, a believer, and that will color the research. Yes, and and that's just a, a difference even in, in terms of the actual target market for that book and what I needed it for. So next we have uh, The Red Church, or The Art of Pennsylvania German Brockerei by C.R. Ballardi. Yeah, this is... Um, for whatever reason, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch, which are actually the Pennsylvania Deutsch, um, they produced a lot of magical books, the book of powwows, um, uh, the, uh, there, there's a, a number of, uh, major, uh, root doctors and, and witch doctors in, in that era that each produced uh sort of compendia, some of it from the same material, some of it from other materials. Uh, the, the seventh book of Moses, sixth and seventh books of Moses is another big uh, title and it's. I may, it may actually be easier than I'm making it sound, but I have found it frustratingly hard to sort of find 
a good single source compendium of Pennsylvania Dutch magic. And so when I saw the red church, which is the art of Pennsylvania German Braucherei, which is yet another one of those terms for their hex magic and their, and their, uh, healing arts, uh, Braucherei basically means usages. The bell went off and I, and I picked it up. And then a friend of mine who, uh, was a practicing occultist, uh, back in the day said, yep, that's a really good one. Uh, you'll not regret it. So I feel, I feel happy about that. Um, I think that again, it's not going to be the one stop shop that I'm hoping it will be, but eventually I'm going to assemble enough of them that I will have full knowledge of Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, hex magic available to me if I ever decide to drill deeply into that area. Um, I suppose also I could just write to Dan Harms and say, Hey Dan, help me out. But that seems like cheating. <laughs> That's somehow. cheating. Yeah. That's, you only get one phone a friend, right? But it would be Daniel Harms. He would be the friend I phone. I will tell you that. Exactly. And still in the uh, practical magic, uh, we have Pale of Mayambi, the garden of blood and bones by Nikolai de Matos Frischbold. And if there's one item on this list that I, deja vu is telling me we've, you already bought and we talked about before it would be this one, but I, I can't be right on that. Can I? Um, I don't know. I, I have not gone down to the voodoo section to see if, uh, I already have my copy of that. I don't remember using it when I wrote the chaos on voodoo, which is why I bought it also, because as I alluded to, I have friends who, uh, would, uh, consider those fine, uh, gifts as well. If it came down to that, right? There's, um, there's this, never a, a duplication tragedy in uh, Ken's bookshop, right? It's it's from the good people at Scarlet Imprint, who are uh, also believers, but do really nice uh, book work, and and they also they go and they talk to people who are actually uh, initiates in the various traditions, often to to do their books. So that's both good and bad. Um, this one uh, lays out Palomayambe in all of its uh, glories and. Creepiness. Palomayambe comes out of Cuba as a version of the Afro-Caribbean uh, religio-magical uh, structure, which I think is the only polite way to say it, but voodoo is how most people wind up saying it. Um, it is the, the Cuban variant, and it is different from Shantaria, uh, because it came out of the Congo, uh, tradition, not out of the generalized Gulf of Guinea, Benin, uh, tradition, Nigerian tradition that a lot of the Cuban, uh, traditions came out of. And the Congolese came later, uh, at a time when the slave economy in Cuba had just ramped itself on up. So their version of the tradition, and generally this is going to be true, the longer the, uh, slave economy is gone, the worse the version of, uh, that, uh, magical system that comes out of it. Palomayambe has lots of very explicit ways to curse people, cause them wounds. Uh, it involves animal sacrifice and blood use and all kinds of other things that are creepy and bad, but you know, they're not as creepy and bad as being enslaved by a bunch of Spaniards. So you got to read it into context, I guess. But the larger point is it is, it remains a living tradition. And I think in a lot of ways, Mayambists or Paloists, I don't know what they, what they're called, sort of enjoy the, tri- the, they're like the Oakland Raiders used to be. They're like, yeah, yeah, we commit penalties. Fine. Screw you. We're too tough. And, and so, uh, I think they have a lot of that Oakland Raiders, uh, tough guy attitude, uh, within that community. And certainly, uh, Nikolai de Matos Frivold is not interested in a version of Palo that does not have that dark side, that left hand path to it. So, 
Uh, again, good basic source. Perhaps I already have it. Perhaps I don't already have it. This is the downside of not having a good app that will tell me what books I own. I, I sense a risk that one of our beloved Patreon backers will now ask you to extend that metaphor to every NFL team and every magical tradition. So let's quickly move on to Jin <laughs> Sorcery by Rain Al-Alim. This one is a straight-up uh, translation and compilation of rituals translated from rare Arabic manuscripts in the author's private collection. Now, uh, there are two possible things that this could be. This could be jinn conjurations and rituals translated from rare Arabic manuscripts in the author's private collection, or it could be someone making up a bunch of jinn rituals. And I am not an Arab uh, bibliographer, so perhaps I will be rooked and gulled, but if you approach it as hey, here's jinn conjurations and rituals. They'll work as well or as badly as any other jinn conjurations and rituals. They should at least provide you a sense of what someone who is trying to fool you into thinking of jinn conjurations and rituals thinks makes sense. And again, it's another uh, Scarlet Library uh, source, which are generally pretty well looked into by the um, uh, by the publisher. I, this guy's got a reputation, and he wants to keep his reputation as a guy who goes back to the original sources and does a, a, a good, strong bit of work. Now, I'm not saying he didn't get gold, but I'm going to say that if you're looking for a book of gin sorcery, this is probably the best one you're going to find. Right. On, on the reliability scale, given the subject matter, pretty reliable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I see we've finally run out of, uh, out of books. I hope you're not too tired from lifting and, and, and pawing uh, all of them. Uh, so, uh, this is our last, uh, regular episode of the year. Uh, next up, uh, uh, next week we will drop the uh, live episode that we recorded at Dragon Meet, and then after that will be our uh, holiday break, and then we'll be back in uh, 2019 uh, with more of our usual nonsense. So everybody go and enjoy an eggnog or seasonal beverage on us, and uh, we'll uh, we'll head off and start uh, putting our uh, 2019 cascade of foolery and wisdom, uh, mostly foolery, uh, together. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Pursue the long-term health of this podcast by joining such Patreon backers as... Linda and Mike Schiffer. Andrew Jones. Mark Galliotti. Isaac Priestley. And Andrew Andrew Dacey. Gift holiday pals with Ken and Robin apparel at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new design. Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>